technology, is there a law that supersedes the law of karma, a higher law than the law of karma? Well, yes and no. I mean, God supersedes his universe, therefore God supersedes his law. And uh, the highest law is reality, which is that which is. And the only thing that is, is God. So karma works in this world of duality. However, karma is really, it can be mitigated. For example, because it's, it is a law, therefore there's something mechanical in it. So if I have a force pushing this way, if I have a contrary force, I can negate that karma. So this is what karma yoga is partly about. You have set up a certain kind of movement in one direction. Karma yoga helps to offset that movement. For example, my guru said that I used to be very full of doubts in past lives. In this life, he has me teaching. And although I don't have any doubts in this life, it is a way of helping to reinforce my um, faith by teaching other people to overcome their doubts. So in many different ways, um, we act against karma to, to nullify it or mitigate it. If, on the, and again, uh, love is the greatest mitigator. If it is your karma to lose a leg, if you're a devotee of God and all your energy is going toward him, you'll have to pay that karma, but you may only get a scratch. So it's very, very different from the ordinary person who's in the ego. I'd say that the final thing is, when you have overcome the ego, then a safe may have to fall on you because of your karma, but you may not be there. Mm -hmm. And so the safe falls anyway, and you're not getting it. Finally, a guru can take some of your karma for you. He, it, it's like a strong man taking the blow that was, is intended for a weakling. And it will not hurt the strong man, it might kill the weakling. So the guru takes some of that burden, and that way you can uh, go on. Finally, you may say that karma is the main thing that darkens the mind. So as we become enlightened, that darkening quality vanishes. Tell me, what is that enlightenment? Enlightenment means knowing that you are not this ego, knowing that you are an expression of God, knowing that in a sense you are God, in an absolute sense you are God, but that this ego is just a dream of God. Going back to that uh, way of mitigating, the many ways of mitigating karma, is there a way to appeal directly to God's grace? you still will have to pay for the karma. But the grace is that to which I've spoken about. You may get a scratch instead of losing a leg. So, um, yes, God's grace has everything finally to do with it. So when Paul in the Bible speaks of uh, being saved by grace and not by works, what's... We still have you know, Christians something. have, fundamentalist Christians, have taken that as their way out of not doing anything. But you notice that even among them, some people are more spiritual than others. Some people are more laden with uh, 
uh, faults. Some people are more forgiving and so on. And so can we say God has made me more forgiving? God has made me more loving? No. We have to realize that grace is like the sunlight on the side of a building. And if you if you have the curtains of a window drawn shut, then the sunlight will not be enter, able to enter into that room. But if you open the curtains up, then the sun can come in. So we have to cooperate with grace. In this sense, I, I've used the illustration of the curtains. We have to open the curtains. And that means that if we try to love people, and if we love them with the love of God rather than with the love of ego because they please us and so on, we're cooperating with grace. To be truthful is to cooperate with grace. To be kind is to cooperate with grace. To give to other people and not take. Why would Jesus, why did the Bible even exist if we didn't have to cooperate with grace and not just wait for God to do it all for us? He won't do it. And uh, he won't save you just because he died on the cross. You've got to do your bit too. So when Yogananda said the spiritual path is 25% our effort. Yeah, 25% his effort, 50% of the grace of God. That's so, true. So that 25% of our effort... Absolutely. We've got to open up ourselves, but we don't bring the sunlight in. But it's 100% of our effort. Yeah, I would say that. Mm -hmm. He said you have to love God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, all your strength. That means 100% of what you've got to do, you have to do. So Swami, that's, uh, that's not the work of a moment. That sounds like the work of a lifetime. That's why um, it may take a lifetime even to come overcome one bad habit, for instance, drunkenness. And it may take longer than one lifetime. Without reincarnation, I don't see how anybody can hope to get there. He can't even imagine where there is. It's not just a question of dying and not going to hell. I mean, there's a long way to progress after you die, after you leave this body. And if you have the slightest desire for this world, you won't be happy in that world. If you want a fast car, you won't be happy there. If you want... Uh, physical pleasures, you won't be happy there. A, wo a woman who is constantly fighting will be miserable in heaven because <laughs> nobody will fight with her. So, and I say woman because women are more emotional, but men fight too. So we have to understand that, that grace is a, it takes lifetimes to become perfect. And the reason we see some people who are, uh, pure-hearted, some people were very impure-hearted, is simply that they're on different levels of uh, the ladder to perfection. But we shouldn't judge anybody because we've all been there. We may not have certain faults now, but that should not make us feel proud because we've had to work hard to get rid of that and we're still having to work, get, to, work to get rid of other things. Or maybe we haven't grown to the point where we can work on something. Yeah, exactly. To be proud of something means not to have completely overcome it. 
Swamiji, how does a person keep their faith on this long journey? I think that faith comes naturally on that long journey. The more you learn that it doesn't help you to gamble or to drink or to kill or to be untruthful, that you yourself suffer. And the more you do what is right, morally, ethically, spiritually, the more you yourself feel better. So your faith comes the more you feel better. Faith is when you see that, that truth working, then you have faith. But how can you have faith if you don't see it working? As you live many lives, you begin to see that, yes, certain things do give me happiness. Swamiji, um, is, there, is there a way to attract that grace? You've spoken of cooperating with it. Love. Love is the most important thing. That's why Sri Yukteswar was my guru's guru. He was a master of wisdom. And yet in his own book, The Holy Science, he said that you, without developing the natural love of the heart, you can't take a single step toward God. Devotion to God is like, our lack of it, is like living next door to the best restaurant in the world. You know that it's the best restaurant. Everybody tells you it's the best restaurant. You know their menu. You know everything about it. But you just aren't hungry. You're not going to go there. You have to have that hunger. So without devotion, you can know all the reasons why you should seek God and still just be an armchair devotee. There has to be this longing for understanding, longing for, for God. Devotion is not a sentimental thing that makes you weep. Devotion is something that's longing to know. That's what's real devotion. How do we whip up that devotion in the heart? I think chanting is half the battle there. I know when I came to Yogananda, I was too intellectual. And uh, I spent many hours chanting and chanting. And that helped me very much. In the end, it was my guru's grace that did it. Can you describe for our listeners what chanting is? What? Well, you know, Yogananda gave their, their Sanskrit chants that many people sing, which are beautiful. But after all, if you don't know what they mean, it's, it sort of takes away something. Yogananda wrote chants in English, and he spiritualized them, which is to say he chanted them until he had a divine response. Anybody who chants those chants receives a divine response if he tunes into it. And uh, in that way, by offering yourself, will that day come to me when singing your name, my eyes will flow tears. This is one song. Um, uh, then death is sweet and life a dream. And life is sweet and death a dream when your song flows through me. Those words are meaningful, and they help to awaken love in the heart. Engrossed is the bee of my mind on the feet of my divine mother. This is uh, on the blue. Engrossed is the bee of my mind on the blue lotus feet of my divine mother. Divine mother, my divine mother, Divine Mother, my Divine Mother. And I used to sing that for hours. And 
I became I find great inspiration in that. And how are chants different from other hymns or spiritual songs? Well, um, I really remember a hymn that we used to sing in Ploiesti in our in Romania in our Anglican church there. There was a green hill far, far away beyond the city walls and he died to save us all. It's all about he. We need to talk to God. Chanting is talking to God. It's not just singing about him. A hymn, hymns tend to be rather vapid. There isn't much inspiration in them, although some hymns are deeply inspiring musically, but not very many. I must admit, I went to the Anglican Church. I was Episcopalian in America, which is the same church. I couldn't find much inspiration there. I, when I sought God, I had to find him in a new way. This is how I met my guru.